Today we continue our series on the mothers of Christ, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and now this morning Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, and then we will also read Matthew 1, 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how he was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, Then, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? 
Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Why is Bathsheba referred to in Jesus' genealogy? Why is she not mentioned by name? Did you see that? The wife of Uriah. Well, we come today in the fourth of Jesus' mothers in this series. And the reason and the answer to those questions brings us back to 2 Samuel 11. We look at a text today that Derek Thomas says should probably be preached once a year in the days in which we live. It's a story that was told yesterday in that sense. There are few valleys so deep and dark in the Bible as this one. David's sins are highlighted. The curse of sin is real. We have all both sinned and we've been sinned against. And what we'll see today is that the gospel comes for sinners and those sinned against. We'll see that God sends a word of grace to David and to Bathsheba, and that God ultimately sends the greater David, the Lord Jesus himself. First, we want to look at what this chapter is in some ways as a picture of what would happen to us if the grace of God were withheld from us for a moment. Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. We see that first in David's sins. 
David's life, one person says, is like a mountain. Imagine climbing Pike's Peak, kids. It goes up and up and up. Up until 2 Samuel 11. We are at the peak at this moment. David was anointed as a young boy by Samuel at Bethlehem. Remember that from last week in Ruth? About 1,000 B.C. is where we put David. Abraham was about 2,000 B.C. As a young boy, David served as a musician to Saul, his armor bearer. He defeats Goliath. He's a hero. He kills 10,000 Philistines. He's a war champion. He escapes from murderous Saul by his good friend Jonathan. He's a man after God's own heart. He writes many psalms. We can't forget that here. He ascends to the throne as king. All of Israel is united under David. He conquers Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant there. He restores true worship to Israel. God makes a covenant with him. I will have one of your sons on your throne, God says, forever. David knows the power and love and grace and faithfulness of God. He defeats more enemies. There's more peace. David himself shows covenant love. Do you remember, kids, that man named Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, David's enemy? David is so kind to him just two chapters before this. One chapter before, David shows covenant love to an enemy, a king of the Ammonites, whose father had died. David has conquered cities, expanded the kingdom to twice the size of Saul's kingdom. Much of Syria and the kingdoms around are provincial vassal states to Israel. We are at the top of the mountain. And with that success and prosperity, we find that David is not the man that he was. He's not the man we thought him to be. This chapter, 2 Samuel 11, is the turning point in David's life and his kingdom. Just as Genesis 3 is the turning point for the entire human race. Things will never be the same again. David does not realize that with spiritual success comes Satan's opposition. Power has eaten into his life. He's not showing loving kindness here to anyone. He's thinking only of himself. The pace slows down in this chapter. Up until now, it's rapid fire through 2 Samuel. Battles and wars. Right now, there's a battle going on with the Ammonites. That king that David showed kindness to, He didn't take too well to David sending his men there. Remember, he cut off their beards and did some other stuff to them? Well, now there's war. And the war with the Ammonites has been going on about a year. It's spring. The Israelites ravage the Ammonite capital, Rabbah, about 24 miles east of the Jordan River, opposite Jericho. Remember Joshua and Jericho and Rahab a few weeks ago? But David did not go to battle. It says he remained at Jerusalem. That's ominous. Even Saul went out to battle the Ammonites. Saul appears in a better light here even than David. It's spring. That means it's hot in Jerusalem. 
People take afternoon naps. That's probably what's happening. David gets up, wants some fresh air, does what they would normally do, and goes to the roof of the house. He looks down from the roof, and the text says he sees a woman bathing. Maybe you've heard in other books or films that have done weird stuff with this passage that David saw Bathsheba seductively bathing on the roof. Or that she was at fault because she was in view of David where she was. Or that she seduced him. Or that they had this mutual passion. Loved ones, do you know that none of those things is in the text? Bathsheba was not bathing in a pool on a roof. There weren't pools on the roofs. It's not like Southern California. Nobody had a bathroom on the roof. She's not bathing on the roof at all. In fact, David's on the roof. She's not seducing David. She's in a courtyard with the full expectation of privacy according to the architecture of the houses of the day. The text never says she was naked. She wasn't in a luxurious bubble bath. What was she doing? You see verse 4? The ritual ceremonial cleansing after her monthly cycle is complete. As Liam Gallagher says, she's most likely fully clothed with a bowl of water. She's not immodest. Her bathing is a matter of holiness according to the purity laws of Moses. She's also not pregnant. That's key. And David's lusting after her is in that context as she's doing the purity hygiene laws. It's astounding. Here's David walking on his roof. He sees her and she's very beautiful. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to notice beauty. God has made beauty in all sorts of ways. But not only did he look, he lusted and he sent And he inquired, and here is where his sin is already in his heart. He should not have done that. He finds out this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah's name was known to David. He was one of the fighting men, the men who are in the inner circle. The special ops, the Navy kind of seals and bodyguards, these guys... Among them were Joshab, who killed 800 men, and Eliezer, the son of Dodo, who struck down Philistines. This guy, Uriah, was well known. This underscores the heinousness of David's sin even more. One person says there was a husband whose famous wife, a sports star, divorced him to marry his close friend. He said, I would have taken a bullet for him. I just didn't imagine that it would come from his gun. Uriah, a man of immense integrity, found himself in that spot. Bathsheba is the daughter of a lion. Do you notice that? A lion was also among David's mighty men. 2 Samuel 23 speaks of these men. And he was possibly the son himself of Ahithophel, David's esteemed counselor. 
If that's Saul, which it very likely is, David knew this family well. She was most likely much younger than he was. Alistair Begg thinks he was mid-40s. Derek Thomas, mid-50s at this point. He inquires. He finds out. What does he do? He's in charge this whole chapter. He sends messengers to get her. He takes her. He takes advantage of her. He lies with her. She returns to his house, her house. No hint here of him caring for her, having affection, love. He sees her form but not her face. He doesn't recognize her. He has to be told her name. He never mentions her by name. He never talks to her. At the end of this, she is called the woman. Verse 5. David was not provoked. She is not an equal partner to his sin. She is not a temptress. David, whom everything was given and given and given by God, he takes and he takes. Verse 5, he hasn't seen or talked to her since that day. Weeks have passed. She can't talk to the king. Her life is over if she's found to be pregnant while her husband, Uriah, is away at battle. She says to David, I'm pregnant. She sends a message. David could have denied being the father. There were no paternity tests then. But he begins to plan a cover-up. Sin leads to sin. It spreads. It's like an octopus with different arms you're trying to grab onto. David is desperate. He wants to cover his tracks. He sends word to Joab, his loyal general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send. Uriah comes. David makes small talk. Uriah, how are things out there at the battle? How's Joab? Trying to make everything seem normal. Do you see how real this is the word of God? David should have been out there on the battlefield. No reply from Uriah at this point. David's goal is to get Uriah home to wash his feet. See that verse 8? Probably a euphemism for him to go and sleep with his wife. So then the deception can be made right for David in his eyes. Uriah is the father. David sends him food, maybe wine, maybe, we don't know, something to kind of get things moving. David wants to implicate Uriah here in a sin. Why is that a sin? That's key. Because Uriah is a soldier. Israel is at war. The soldiers don't go home to be with their wives at wartime. But David's plan fails. He can't control Uriah. Uriah doesn't go to his house. Instead, Uriah replies in verse 11, and what is on Uriah's mind? Do you notice that? The ark of God. The presence of God. Uriah feared the Lord in his heart. He's a Gentile, a Hittite, a foreigner. Much like Rahab and Ruth, he joins with God's people, confesses the God of Israel as his God. David is not thinking of God at all. The ark of the Lord is on the battlefield, that ark that David had brought to Jerusalem, signifying the presence and nearness of God. And so as one man says, David has sent Joab and all Israel and Uriah, 
and even the Lord into battle. And David, in his mind, is so high and exalted that he thinks he can manipulate all of Israel and even God himself. David has fallen hard and far. Uriah appears more righteous than David. So David plans another idea. I'll get Uriah drunk. Then he'll go to his wife. That doesn't work. Plan C, I'm going to write a murder letter. This is so twisted. And I'm going to send the letter via Uriah to Joab, the commander. And David trusts Uriah so much that he knows that he won't open the letter which has his own death warrant in it. If David confesses adultery, he condemns himself to death in that day in Israel. David didn't do that. Instead, David wants Uriah killed in his place for his sin. It's an anti-gospel. Joab carries out David's orders. He adds some things to it. This is military suicide, reckless tactics. Joab is a good general, and the people around him would be saying, what are you doing? He puts Uriah out where the valiant men are. Uriah is killed, but so are other servants of David in this. He didn't just leave Uriah alone like David's plan said. He tried to kind of cover that up even, and in the process, more blood. But what David wanted, he got. Uriah the Hittite is dead. It says that five times here, Uriah the Hittite. It's a foil showing righteous Uriah and sinful David. Joab sends the report back to David. He expects David's anger to rise. And we read a very interesting verse, verse 21. Very strange. He's referring to a time when Gideon's son, Abimelech, besieged an enemy fortress, was killed by a millstone thrown by a woman that crushed his head. Very odd, isn't it? You read that? Why is he saying that? Joab, who is himself cunning, is more righteous here than David also. David, you're no better than Abimelech. You're guilty. And you also wonder, does Joab know of David's sexual sin here? We don't know for sure, but we see David's response. How would David react? Well, no big deal. It's wartime. People die. It's not a big problem. That's the way war is. David is calling evil good and good evil exactly the opposite of what he is called by God to do. Where's Bathsheba in all this? She's only mentioned twice in the chapter. After she was dismissed by David and reports her pregnancy, she laments and mourns her husband. She grieves. Bathsheba has been sinned against by David. Uriah has been sinned against by David. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. His plan is good. Uriah is dead. Now he can bring Bathsheba into his house, add her to his wives, adopt the child. We're good. As Alistair Begg says, he lives by the 11th commandment. No one needs to find out. And he would have succeeded 
If it weren't for what he overlooked in his manipulation, what does he not realize? His own words in Psalm 11, God's eyes see. He'd forgotten God. And the chapter ends with some of the most understated words of the Bible. This thing displeased the Lord. Literally, it's evil in the sight of the Lord. God who is holy. David, who is cold and calculating and hard and manipulative, has no lament over the death of Uriah or the soldiers or what he did to Bathsheba. He's broken the law of God as we just read it. He's lacking love for God and his neighbor. And it's a reminder to all of us to guard our hearts. The way of sin is downhill. The seed of every known sin lies in our hearts. David's playing around with it like a cat with a mouse, kind of pawing it around. He's not nourishing his heart with the gospel. He's not amazed at the love of God for him. He's presumptuous. God has been gracious to me so many times before. I can do whatever I want. That's the foundation of this sin. His desire is already there. The opportunity presents itself, and it meets. There's a point, Derek Thomas says, in temptation at which you can't go back. Your mind ponders it. Your affections are engaged. We know this when we sin. We know this when we say a harsh word to a loved one. The blood is boiling, and we're mad, we're going to say it. And our affections and our passions are there. God, be merciful to us. Where are we with the Lord? A reminder to hide the word in our hearts. To pray for our spouse, for our kids, for one another, for your elders and pastor and deacons. To pray that God would not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. A reminder that David is a sinner and so are we, that we're undone before the law of God. David has sent all throughout the chapter, sending, commanding, scheming. Where's the hope here? I'll tell you this, it's not in chapter 11 at all. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, the Lord sent. Secondly, the grace and repentance that God gives. God sends Nathan the prophet. We know about cover-ups, politics everywhere. There's no way this story should have gotten out, right? Except that God loved David too much to let him bury it and hide it in his heart and lock it with a key. The hound of heaven is after David, his beloved son here. Not that David would try to fix it or live in regret or beat himself up or make things better. None of those things happen. Almost a year after the events of chapter 11, David's friend, Nathan, the prophet, comes. He tells him a parable. A poor man had a little lamb. He loved it. It was like a child to him. A rich man had a huge flock He took that little lamb of the poor man. He killed it. He served it to his guests to eat. 
David is enraged. Who is that man? He deserves to die. By the Spirit of God, to cut away diseased tissue in David's heart and to heal the wound, Nathan uses David's own tongue as a knife. Nathan's story is a parable of David's life. God says, I gave you all Judah and Israel. I would have given you more, 2 Samuel 7. But David has despised God's generosity and love. He's become the godless king that Samuel warned about, who takes and takes. He took the little lamb. Bathsheba is the little lamb. Nowhere in this chapter does Nathan blame Bathsheba. Nowhere in Psalm 51 does David blame Bathsheba. Yes, Bathsheba's a sinner. Uriah's a sinner. They need grace. We need grace. But they are not to blame here. David does this. God says to him, David, you've despised me. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel 10. Something dark is in David's heart. Only God can help him. In the past, David had used his position, his shrewdness to get out of stuff. But not now. God has many ways of awakening sinners to repentance. By his word and spirit, he does just that. No more pretending or performing. We've been talking about that in Sunday school, haven't we? David breaks down. I've sinned against the Lord. And true repentance is seen in that he accepts the consequences of his sins. Remember David's life? It's a mountain. He's going up, up, up. Why is that? Todd Bordeaux says, David's a type of Christ. His kingdom is a type of the kingdom of the Messiah. The first part of his life is a picture of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth that Jesus will bring. Up until 2 Samuel 11, they're wondering in that day, is David the promised one? Will David crush the seed of the serpent? Will he bring God's glory on earth? No. Everything crashed. David's a sinner and needs a savior. And now everything goes downhill in David's life, even as David is repentant. God loves David, and God disciplines him and chastens him. The child in Bathsheba's womb dies. David's dysfunctional family falls apart. David refuses to rebuke his sons. One of his sons, Amnon, rapes his sister. Absalom kills Amnon. They are mimicking their father in these sins. Absalom forms a conspiracy against David. Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba, joins in Absalom's conspiracy. Ahithophel tells Absalom to go to David's concubines. Evil is spreading in David's house. David flees Jerusalem. Joab kills Absalom. Later on, Solomon kills Adonijah and Joab. God said this in 2 Samuel 12.10, as God's word The sword will never depart from your house, David. Sheba rebels against David. Israel goes after Sheba in the north. 
David, in his pride, wants a census. He takes it. God punishes him. 70,000 in Israel die. And David dies with a divided kingdom. Sin has consequences. But while David's sin would lead to heavy chastening from God, God's covenant grace in Christ is stronger here than David's sin. And we miss that if we miss the consequence part. If we just skip over that, right? We don't really see the beauty of the gospel. David repents. He writes Psalm 51 in the context of Nathan coming to him. He was a believer before this sin. You know that? He was backsliding. But God loved him too much to let him abandon the Lord. God brought him back. And he begins Psalm 51. How? It's an amazing psalm. With apprehending the mercy of God. He doesn't begin with his sin. He'll talk about his sin. There's no repentance apart from apprehending God's love to you. Faith and repentance are the same side, two sides of the same coin. They're born in our hearts by the Spirit. A believing repentance. David in boldness says, God, fulfill your promise to me. God, you have said you love me. You said it to Abraham. You said it in your covenant of grace. Do it, God, you're a God of compassion. Do we have that boldness in prayer? Don't hold back, loved ones. Storm the mercy seat in Christ. God, you promised it. God, do it. God, have mercy on me. Pledge yourself to love me. Show me your love. He doesn't make excuses in his psalm of repentance. You know, the kind that we tend to make or hear a lot. If you knew my background, if you knew my family, if you knew my upbringing, if you knew my stress, if you knew about Bathsheba, if you knew about the war with the Ammonites, he doesn't say any of that. My sin, my transgression, my iniquity. He says, I'm evil. I've sinned against you, O God. I've dishonored your holy name. Wash me. My sin is like a shirt that's full of sweat and blood and dirt and mud. Wash it. Clean me. My soul is polluted. My bones are breaking. I need relief from guilt and shame and dirtiness. The question is how? How can God blot out his sins and cleanse him? It's outrageous, right? Uriah's dead. Bathsheba's taken advantage of. The baby will die. David despised the word of the Lord. He scorned God and it says God put away his sin. And you think, well, God is righteous and holy. How is this possible? As one man says, because of Paul's words in Romans 3, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? 
by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's what 2 Samuel says. God passed over David's sins. And we would be outraged if God just brushed them under the rug. But God sees from the time of David a thousand years down into the future when the Son of God, Jesus, would die in David's place. So David's faith is trusting in the Messiah to come. The mercy and grace of God, he's provided a salvation in his Son. It takes another David to save sinners. The gospel is about God sending his son into the world as the son of David to be born under the law, to take the curse of our sin, our lust, and our murder, our words that are expressions of that murder, our lack of love for the Lord and our covetousness, where we have sinned, where David sins, Jesus overcomes temptation. Cast yourself on him, Emmaus wrote. Let him cover your sin now and forever. By faith and repentance, the Spirit changes us. Here's how one person says it. God loves you. He wants your sin to be gone. He hates watching our sin affect us and affect others around us and cause harm to our soul and our relationships and our communion with God. God hates that. Much like you, mom and dad, hate the fever that your kids have when they're sick or whatever illness they have and what it does to them. Jesus never loses his tender compassion for you. He sings over you. He cares for you. There's forgiveness for David. There's forgiveness for us. The blood of Christ covers all sin. The gospel is good news for sinners who trust by faith and repentance in Christ. And it's good news for those who are sinned against. Bathsheba is in the genealogy as the wife of David, the mother of Solomon. The child born dies, but God gives him another child. God loves Solomon. He's the next king. The line continues to Christ, but there's something more even interesting in the genealogy for why she's there. She's called the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's probably an Israelite. Uriah is a Gentile, a Hittite. It says that not to slam her or to slam Uriah, but in a positive light. Uriah, the believing Gentile, that's who she's the wife of. The gospel is for those like Uriah who are sinned against by the king. It's for those like Bathsheba who are sinned against by David. And it's for all who have been harmed. All who need a kind Savior to deal with them in compassion. Jesus is that Savior. Maybe you have shame. Maybe you have hurt right now. Maybe someone sinned against you deeply that you knew and trusted. Maybe it was a stranger that you never knew. Jesus knows, He cares. He helps, he intercedes for you. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make you, Emmaus Road, beautiful. You are his bride. He comes to clean us and dress us and cover us and adorn us. And we are conformed to the image of Jesus, meaning we are being made more beautiful, reflecting his goodness and beauty and love in compassion and mercy to each other. Bathsheba in the genealogy reminds us we as a church care for sinners and for those sinned against with the gospel, with the presence of each other, with praying for each other, that by God's grace, this is a place where those who are hurt can come to find restoration in Christ and love in Christ and love for each other, that by the gospel, we will grow in affectionate relationships together. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.